Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, welcome everyone again. Please uh, find your seats and we're going to open the Word of God. So uh, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. And uh, last week, we, when we were at the park, we did a, kind of an overview of chapter 4 and 5. But now we're going to go into chapter 4 and next week uh, into chapter 5 into a little bit more detail. Uh, and so today we're going to be focusing on chapter 4. And before we read it, I want us to think a little bit about why is limited government such a good idea? And I realize that this immediately gets political. And uh, believe me, my intention is not to go into politics or to, to say anything uh, too controversial here. But um, I, was, I was thinking about this. And, and as I studied this passage... I was reflecting on limited government. Why is it that it is such a good idea that no man should have ultimate authority? Or I could put it another way, why is authoritarian government such, such a heinous thing, such a such an, uh, uh, bad thing? Why is it that whenever we hear of a dictator or someone who is, uh, um, and I mean this, I'm sure we all have different opinions, but whenever someone in authority is uh, um, abusing the authority that they have been given, why is it that it's such a, such, a, such a heinous thing? And I believe that the reason why it is not fitting for man to have ultimate sovereignty, ultimate authority, ultimate power is because, number one, man is sinful. Number two, man is finite. In other words, man is not eternal. Man is a creature, right? There is no single man other than the Lord Jesus who created things or the world or anything, right? Man is a creature and man is dependent. Man is not autonomous or independent. And that's why I believe that no man or woman should have ultimate unlimited authority, unlimited power. And that's why I think that limited government is such a good idea. And, and that's as far as I'm going to go into, you know, maybe more detailed politics, even though really the message of the gospel and the message of the book of Revelation is a highly political um, message. But I just wanted us to think about that. And so as we read chapter 4, I think it is important for us to realize that what John is doing and ultimately what Jesus is doing in chapter 4 is he is reminding 
the readers, the, the, the audience of his letter, the seven churches in Asia Minor and, and the church over the ages, that only God is Lord. That only God has ultimate authority over all of his creation, that he is the creator. He is the only one who can have unlimited authority. He is the only one who can have, and this is going to sound weird, but he's the only one who can have unchecked authority because he is sovereign, because he is eternal, because he is holy, because he is the creator. And so in chapter 4, John is really, really showing who God is. In other words, John chapter 4 is almost like an expansion to the argument that Paul begins to make in Romans 9, 18 and forward. Remember when he's talking about God saving people and God condemning some people? Uh, Paul poses this, this uh, um, hypothetical question. So then... Well, actually, so he starts by saying, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so he poses the hypothetical question, you will then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is Paul's response. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So in other words, when the question of why does God have unlimited authority and unlimited power and why can he do whatever he wants with his creation? Well, the reason is, who are you to, who are you to answer back to God? He's the creator. He is, he is the potter. He can do whatever he wants with the vessels that he molded. Can anyone blame Can anyone blame Shakespeare for any decisions that he made with his characters? Can anybody say, "Hey, why did you do that? That was such a terrible thing to do. That was unfair." Who cares? It's his work. He can do whatever he wants to do with it. And so I believe that in, in, in Revelation chapter 4, John is preparing his audience to understand that everything that is about to happen, the seven seals that are going to be open, uh, open and bring about the wrath of God, the seven trumpets that are bringing the wrath of God, everything that is going to happen in the book of Revelation, which is going to be very intense, rests on the fact that God has ultimate authority over his creation. So let's read. Uh, Let's read chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature, living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their golden sorry, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are you, our Lord and God." To receive the glory, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you guide us today as we look a little bit uh, more in detail, chapter 4. Lord, I pray that we would have a right understanding of who you are, of your holiness, of your power, of your worth. I pray that by your spirit, you open our minds and our hearts. I pray that by your spirit, you transform the way that we think and, and that you transform us, Lord that you bring new life into our hearts. Please guide me in the words that I'm about to speak. And Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So from this passage, we're going to learn uh, a few things about who God is. And, and to summarize it, we're going to learn that God is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is eternal, that he is imminent, and we're going we're gonna to do that, that he is creator and sustainer. But before we do that, I, I do want to 
uh, clear the desk a little bit because there is definitely a lot here that I'm sure that, <laughs> you know, definitely makes us wonder like, hey, who are these 24 elders and who are these four creatures and what's up with the lion face and the ox, ox face and the human and the flying eagle, etc. And this is, so let me, let me just be really honest with you. This, this is where I'm at. First of all, uh, ever since we, well, even before we decided that we were going to go through the book of Revelation, um, I really didn't feel like, you know, like I was ready to preach the book of Revelation. But we figured, hey, if we wait until we feel ready to preach Revelation, we're never going to preach it, right? Because it's such a complicated book. And so I figure, okay, let's just go through it once and see what happens. And, and you know, in five, ten years, whenever we preach it again, uh, we will have gone, we will, you know, already have one round of the book of Revelation under our belts. And, and hopefully we will have a better understanding. Um, and all of that to say, there are a lot of things in the book of Revelation that I do not understand. There are a lot of things in here that I, it's almost like the more I read about it, the more confused I get because uh, some people, you know, say, oh yeah, the 24 elders are, are redeemed representatives of, of humanity. And on the other hand, people say, no, these are angelic creatures. And then, you know, there are all sorts of different interpretations. There are some people that say the precious stones mentioned here have a very precise uh, uh, allegorical interpretation and figure, and they represent this and this about God. There are other people that say, no, really, they're just there to show like the huge power and might of God. But this is just John trying to describe with human language something that cannot be described. And so I really don't want to spend a lot of time discussing all of the little details and trying to find a, a you know, so, somewhat of a hidden meaning behind them. Not because I don't believe that they have a hidden meaning, but because I feel like it would take a long time, not just to preach, but also to, to, for me to actually go and look at all of the details. Um, also because, like I said, I'm not even sure that I, that I you know, Whenever I read one of the interpretations of the little details, I sometimes I'm not sure like this is the right interpretation. And usually preach, I like to say things that I'm very sure about. And so I don't want to be preaching and saying, well, this possibly means this and this could mean this. But on the other, do you get what I'm saying? Um, so the approach that we're going to take to the book of Revelation is we mostly want to ask the question to the text, what is the bigger picture? What, what does God want people to know from this passage? Why did God decide to reveal this to John so that he would dis disclose it to the seven churches in Asia Minor? What was the purpose for this? And so I believe, like I was saying earlier, that the purpose for chapter 4 and 5, this window into heaven that John uh, sees is to encourage the seven churches in Asia Minor that even though they are going through 
through tribulation, through persecution, even though they are suffering, they're being martyred, even though things seem to be out of control, God wants them to know, God wants them to see what really is going on in heaven. God wants them to see that in heaven, he is ultimate, the ultimate ruler, and he has the ultimate authority. And he wants them to see that just as Jesus taught the disciples to pray, that whatever is going on in heaven will be the same way on earth. And I think that this is important for us to remember as well because things are also interesting for us. And they might not be as difficult as they were for them. Our situation might not be as difficult as that of the believers in Afghanistan right now. I think that, you know, not that this book would be less encouraging to us, but I imagine that the book of Revelation would be of such encouragement to the believers in Afghanistan who are at risk of being murdered and to the ones that were already murdered because of their faith in Christ. So with that in mind, let's, let's go a little bit more into the passage. So I, I will mention a few of the details. So John is there. He, uh, he looked in the book of Revelation. There is this interesting connection between what he sees sorry, what he hears and what he sees. So in this case, it says, And after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, and this voice is the voice of Jesus. So Jesus is revealing this to John. This is a second vision that he's having. The first one was uh, the vision of the resurrected Christ and the message to the seven churches. And now he is receiving this second vision in which uh, Jesus tells him, come up here. He invites him into this door, this open door into heaven. And he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. By the way, that word, what must take place, is a word that throughout the entire scripture, it indicates the sovereignty of God. It indicates that whatever must take place, no human, no, no, human, no man, no person can can oppose this or, and, and succeed. No human can thwart the plans that must take place. And so he tells them what, mu- what must take place after this. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit. So he was uh, seeing a vision. He was not there uh, in the flesh. He was there in the spirit. And behold, a throne. He doesn't say, and behold, there was a throne. It just says, and behold, a throne, almost to add to the, to the dramatic scene. Like, it's, you know, he, he is there and all of a sudden, wow, there is this throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. So notice that throughout his description of what he is seeing in heaven, he doesn't really mention God, right? He doesn't say, and God was there or, or Yahweh was there or the Lord was sitting on the throne. He just says, behold, a throne with one seated on the throne. And I believe that the reason why he doesn't mention God being there is I think he is following the tradition of all of the Jewish uh, prophets before him. And he is following the Jewish tradition of 
having so much respect for who God is and for the name of God that he wouldn't even mention it. And I also believe that God is indescribable. God is invisible. No human eye can see the Lord, right, and, and, and live. And so in this case, he can only describe with human terms what he is seeing. And so he describes someone who is seated on the throne, verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And this is one of those uh, this is one of those places where I can tell you there are like a million interpretations of this. And I don't know exactly what it means. I think that these precious stones, one of the interpretations that I liked is that these precious stones are, one of them is red, carnelian is red, and it speaks about his judgment, about his wrath. Jasper is probably not the right word to translate this is probably a different kind of precious stone that is like that is clear like crystal and so this probably refers to his holiness and so in this particular case he is seeing God and he sees that there is this perfect uh, unity of his holiness and his judgment and then it says that around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald and so in this case, the rainbow is possibly, or I think the rainbow should, should definitely remind us to the covenant that God made with Noah, right? It should remind us to God making this promise to Noah that he was not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. This is a reminder of God's mercy, a reminder of God's grace. But at the same time, it should be a reminder of God's wrath. Because we cannot think of the promise that God made to Noah without thinking of the flooding of the whole earth in which humanity was punished because of their sin. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So these last week that, that we preached, I was more inclined to think that these were uh, that these are uh, human beings who are there as representatives of the redeemed. The interpretation is that 12 of them were the, the, the 12 uh, uh, heads of the 12 tribes, the, the patriarchs, the tribes of Israel. And the other 12 are the apostles. Uh, after doing more reading on the topic this week, I'm actually more inclined to believe that these are angels. These are some sort of high-ranking angels that are around the throne of God. And ultimately, the point is not about the angels. The point is about the glory of God. These angels are only there to, to emphasize the greatness of the throne, right? John is not describing, or I should say, John's focus is not to describe what is going on around. His focus is the, the throne. In other words, John is really proclaiming that the center of the universe is the throne of God. The universe revolves around the throne of God. And so these elders are there, which again, I believe that these are angels. 
And then from the throne came flash, um, verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And this image of the flashes of lightning, the rumblings, and the peals of thunder should definitely remind us to Exodus when the people are uh, uh, waiting for Moses, who is on Mount Sinai, and there are, there are peals of thunder. There is rumbling. The earth is, is trembling. There are uh, clouds, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible scene. It's a scary scene. People do not want to go up there. People don't even want to get close. If, even if an animal were to touch the mount, they would die. The seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've, we've talked about this a couple of times, how the Holy Spirit is described in this sevenfold manner and how the Holy Spirit, the, the fire aspect is probably uh, his power to, or, or how Jesus baptizes with, the, with fire. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But it could also be uh, the judgment aspect of the, or the, the judgment fire and so whatever, it, you know, I, I think it could actually be both. Whatever the case is here, the Holy Spirit is active here. The Holy Spirit is present in this throne scene. And around the throne, oh, sorry, verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So notice, John himself cannot even describe exactly what it is, right? So he has to use words like Right? He says, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And so this sea of glass probably signifies, again, the purity of God, the holiness of God, the fact that God is separated from everything and everyone else. God is inapproachable, in a sense, because of his holiness. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I'm not even going to try to explain to you what all the faces mean or the, all of the eyes. There is a lot of information out there. Um, all I want to say about this is that these creatures, these li living beings, are most likely angels because they are very, very similar to the angels described in Ezekiel 1, in which Ezekiel 1 very, very clearly says that they are cherubim. They are also very similar to the angels described in Isaiah 6, in which the, the angels are worshiping the Lord in the same way that these angels are. And those angels are described as seraphim. And so I think that these four creatures are probably a higher ranking, if not the highest ranking angels who are there in the presence of God, worshiping him and, and, and guarding his holiness and, and uh, really it says they do not cease day and night to say 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We later learn that these angels are also the ones who are sent to, to release the, the four writers and, and they have other tasks as well. But these angels are there. And yet again, this entire scene is to highlight the greatness and the power of the one who is seated on the throne. The center of this scene is not the 24 elders, not the four creatures. It is the Lord God Almighty. And so this is what, what they say, and this is what I want us to focus on. They are singing this song to God, which says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so one of the things that we learn about God, and one of the reasons why God is the one who has ultimate authority is because he is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is separate from all of his creation. He is not on the same level with anything or anyone in his creation, not even with these angels that are described here. God is infinitely perfect and holy. In fact, he is three times holy as a way of emphasizing how holy he is, how inapproachable he is because of his holiness. And therefore, apart from his mercy, do you think we have any hope of getting anywhere close to him? No. Apart from his mercy, no. We would die. We would completely die. Even if we looked at him, we would die on the spot. Because he is holy and we are not. We are sinful. We also learn from this song that he is sovereign, right? It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This was a title. This was one of the names of God that was said of him throughout the entire Old Testament. The Lord God Almighty, Yahweh of hosts. And this actually speaks about his unrivaled power over all things. I like the psalm that we read at the beginning of this gathering, Psalm 115, where it mocks the idols. There is nothing that can rival the power and the supremacy of God. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is above everyone and everything else. Number three, he is eternal, right? It says, who was and is and is to come. This is a way of showing that God is eternal. He existed forever. He existed from eternity past. There was no beginning to God. God has always existed. He is outside of time. There was not a moment in history when God began to exist. He has always existed. And He is. He exists today. He is present. He is here. Now, notice that you would, you would usually, it, wouldn't it make more sense to say who was, who is, and who will be? Right? I mean, keeping with the same verb, but John here intentionally changes something that, that was more traditional. He changes it and says, who was, 
and who is, and who is to come. He changes the verb instead of being to come. And this is an indication that God is imminent. Now, what, is, what does imminent mean? I don't, I don't mean imminent. I mean imminent with an A. And this means that he is involved. He is present. He intentionally, even though he is holy, he is perfect, he is separated from his creation because of his holiness, he intentionally decided to become involved with his creation. He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He revealed himself to various people throughout the history of the world. And like it says in Galatians, at the appointed time in history, he entered his creation through Jesus. And I believe that what John is trying to get at here is that ultimately he will come and he will intervene finally to end the plan for all of his creation, to complete the plan that he has for all of creation. And so we can worship God because he is eternal, because he has always existed. He has the right to rule. He has all of authority because he is eternal. But he also has the right to rule, and this is mostly his mercy, because he is involved in his creation. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. No man should have ultimate authority because man is not our creator. The president should not have ultimate authority because he's not our creator. The governor should not have ultimate authority. No one should have ultimate authority because they are not the creator. But God is. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he created all things. Like I was sharing earlier, he has the right to do whatever he wants because he is the creator. Can any of us answer back to God and say, why did you make me the way that you make me? Why did you do this or that? No, he is the creator. He can do whatever he wants. But not only is he the creator, he is also the sustainer of all of creation. And by your will, they existed and were created. It is by God's will that things exist. In other words, if God stopped willing that things existed, they would just collapse. There's a couple of phrases here. One by Abraham uh, Kuyper, who, who was a uh, prime minister in the Netherlands in the 1900s. 
in a believer, he said, there is, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a single thing in the world that Jesus doesn't say, this is mine. Or in the words of R.C. Sproul, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. God controls every single thing in this universe. He has power and sovereignty over every single atom in this universe. This universe exists because of him. So there are three implications that I want us to go with. I'm sure there are a lot more. But these are the three that came to mind. The first one is, if we truly believe that God is this being, this amazing, in, in, a, in, a, in a positive meaning to this word that has changed meanings, this terrible, this awesome God, I think that the first implication is that we should worship him, that we should give him thanks. Turn with me to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. In Romans 1, verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and created things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, because God created all things, because God created us because he is the creator of everything and because we have enough evidence in creation that there is a creator we should worship him it's it's that simple we should worship god there is no excuse for anyone we should worship god because he is here the second implication is 
trust Him. Right? If He is sovereign over everything in creation, if He is sovereign over any, every single detail in the world, then let us trust Him. For the people of, for, for the audience here in, in Revelation, it was probably difficult for them to trust God when things were going so poorly for several of them, when they were being persecuted. For the people that experienced some of the, that, were, that have been present in God exercising his wrath, it's probably difficult to trust him. It is difficult to trust God when things don't go the way that we want them to go. It is difficult to trust God when you have a terminal illness or some sort of really uncomfortable illness that just won't go away. It is difficult to trust God when you might be losing your job. It is difficult to trust God when this country that, that, you, that, that we love so much seems to be going down the drain. It is difficult to trust God when you are trying to rest and your child asks you for a favor. It is difficult to trust God when you get in an argument with your spouse. It is difficult to trust, and I could just go on and on and on. We always struggle to trust God, even in the smallest of things. But if we truly believe that God is the King of the universe, the Lord God Almighty, then we should trust Him. Remember what He says in, in, in Romans 8.28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Everything works together for your good if you love God because He is sovereign and He is working every single thing Number one, for his glory, but number two, for your good, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. And the last implication is this throne, this awful throne, would be a terrible place to approach if it were not for the work of Christ. And therefore, the implication is that those of us who are in Christ, those of, our, those of us who have completely surrendered to Him, the implication is that we would approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, Since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because Jesus is our high priest, because Jesus already took the wrath of God on our behalf, then we can approach, we can come to the throne 
And notice what, how this throne is called. The throne of wrath? No. The throne of grace. Because of the work of Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace, the throne of God, without being consumed, without being destroyed. I want us to finish by reading Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that's what we're going to do right now. That's what we're doing right now. We are going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We're going to remember the shedding of his blood, the giving of his body. And we're going to take this time to, to think about that, to think about God's throne, to think about his, how inapproachable that throne is. And yet, the free access that we have to that throne through the death of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're, we're going to sing a, another hymn together. And while we sing that hymn, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, those of us that we know that we belong to him, this is only reserved for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. We will come up here and take uh, the cup and grab a, a piece of bread, bring it back to your place. And when we finish singing the, the, this hymn, we will take it together, remembering the work of Jesus on the cross. The work of Jesus that makes us able to enter and approach the throne of grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We worship you. You are holy. You are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. You can do whatever you want. And we worship you because you chose to save us. Because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us from our sins, to cleanse us from our sins so that we could approach your throne. And Lord, we are so, so grateful that ultimately you will come and we will be in your presence forever. We, would be, we will be inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. 
We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.